Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from uh, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, chapter 4, and reading verses 1 through 16. And again, I invite you to turn there and follow along as I read from God's holy and inspired word. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, We will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. As I have stated before, a part of my motivation for focusing on this doctrine of the church is so that our love for the bride of Christ might increase. If the Lord Jesus loved the church so much that he was willing to suffer and die for her, then should not our own attitude towards the church reflect that same level of love? And yet, oddly, there exists among many who claim Christ as Lord a distaste for what they label organized religion, preferring instead a kind of loose, voluntary association with like-minded individuals that affords them a liberty to come and go as they please, without any real connections or responsibilities or entanglements, or the worst-case scenario, a private faith that lives in isolation, 
darkening the doors of the church only for weddings or funerals. But such perspectives are contrary to what we find in the Scriptures, such as the one before us today. Here we find the Apostle Paul speaking about the church as a body that Christ has designed for a purpose and gifted for a reason that is for our spiritual development and nurture. We find in this letter a perspective towards the church that recognizes her beauty and value, not because of what she has done, but because of what Christ has done for her and is continuing to do through her. The picture we receive here is that of a living organism that is growing and maturing and working and interacting in ways that are reflective of the life of Christ as well as necessary for individual believers. To disdain full participation in this body is to subject oneself to a spiritual immaturity that struggles to discern truth from error, wisdom from knowledge, and holiness from sin. This body that is called the church is assembled by Christ for the benefit of His disciples so that they might attain spiritual maturity. The church exists to nurture us and help us grow in faith and service. Now, I would like for us to notice the emphasis that Paul places upon the notion of unity and singularity in the beginning of this text. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. If Paul was aware of one thing, it was the propensity for sinners to desire to go their own way. By the time he writes to the Ephesians, he has seen the factions within the assembly in Corinth and chastened them for their disunity. He has seen their disregard for sin within their assembly and prescribed a plan for spiritual discipline to correct that problem. By this time, he has written to the Galatians and chastened them for their lack of discernment in terms of truth and error with respect to the gospel. So when he writes to the Ephesians, we see this encouragement to attend to one's manner of life, calling upon the fruit of the Spirit in one's conduct so that collectively they might maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. When it comes to the truth of God's Word, the enemy is always attempting to call that into question. The enemy is always attempting to foment discord within the body of Christ. The enemy is always attempting to infiltrate the assembly with authoritative voices that offer an alternative view laced with just enough spiritual poison to eventually kill the subject. But the apostle is underscoring that when it comes to the gospel, there are no acceptable alternative views. There is one body. There is one spirit. There is one hope. There is one Lord. There is one faith. There is one baptism. 
There is one God and Father of all. Now to maintain this unity, Paul invokes the condescension and then the ascension of Christ, offering an explanation of what all of that meant. He says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth, and he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now Paul is quoting a verse from Psalm 68, which has not been particularly easy to interpret at verse 18 based upon the amount of disagreement among commentators uh, surrounding it because it appears that Paul misquotes the verse when he writes to the Ephesians. Psalm 68, 18 says this, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts from among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. But Paul quotes it as, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So did he receive gifts from men or did he give gifts to men? Does it even matter? Well, I believe that Dr. Gary Smith has rightly deciphered this textual mystery for he believes that what the psalmist was alluding to was God ascending to Mount Zion where he would establish his dwelling place with Israel and that the captives God was taking with him were the Levites who would serve the Lord there as priests to the people of God and would then be God's gift to the people. Dr. Smith points to Numbers chapter 18, where God says to Aaron, And behold, I have taken your brothers, the Levites, from among the people of God. They are a gift to you, given to the Lord, to do the service of the tent of meeting. In other words, the Levites were taken captive, received by God as a gift among men, even among the rebellious, namely the Israelites, but they were then given back to the Israelites as a gift for their service as priests in the temple where God's people would meet the Lord. Now when we understand the psalm this way, the supposed misquote immediately evaporates, and it gives greater impact to what Paul is saying here about Christ coming from heaven to earth in the incarnation, then his ascension far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. There is no question that we are the recipients of God's grace portrayed in Christ Jesus, but God's grace continues to be poured out upon the church through the gifts that Christ from his exalted heavenly place, continues to pour out upon his church. It began with the outpouring of his Spirit at Pentecost, that he might fill all things. But it continued as he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, 
in the same way that God used the Levites. For there to be unity within the body of Christ, God provides individuals who have been tasked with establishing and maintaining the truth of God's saving activity towards his people. We know the role that the apostles played in serving as the foundational voices of the gospel presentation, as well as those who were apostles of the second order, who also prophetically spoke on God's behalf to the people of God. These earliest proclaimers took the Great Commission seriously, and they began making disciples, first in Jerusalem and Judea, then moving into Samaria, and then to the ends of the world. The historical record speaks of their missionary efforts to carry the good news of Christ, first to the Jews, but then to the Gentiles, imploring people of every tribe and tongue to embrace the gospel. But the Lord also gave gifts to the church in the form of evangelists and pastors and teachers. These are those who have been tasked with maintaining the gospel according to the foundation set by the apostles. These are those commissioned to exhort and train and teach and correct that the saints might be equipped for their own ministry. Listen to what John Calvin says about this. Paul shows by these words that this human ministry which God uses to govern the church, is the chief sinew by which believers are held together in one body. He then also shows that the church can be kept intact only if it be upheld by the safeguards in which it pleased the Lord to place its salvation. Christ ascended on high, Paul says, that he might fill all things. This is the manner of fulfillment. Through the ministers to whom he has entrusted this office and has conferred the grace to carry it out, he dispenses and distributes his gifts to the church. And he shows himself as though present by manifesting the power of his spirit in this, his institution, that it be not vain or idle. Thus the renewal of the saints is accomplished. Thus the body of Christ is built up. Thus we grow up in every way into Him who is the head and grow together among ourselves. Thus are we all brought into the unity of Christ. If prophecy flourishes among us, if we receive the apostles, if we do not refuse the doctrine administered to us. Whoever, he says, therefore, either is trying to abolish this order of which we speak and this kind of government or discounts it as not necessary, is striving for the undoing or rather the ruin and destruction of the church. For neither the light and heat of the sun nor food and drink are so necessary to nourish and sustain the present life as the apostolic and pastoral office is necessary to preserve the church on earth. Now, I know that's a mouthful, but Calvin's point is Paul's point. The church is the ordinary means by which the saints are nurtured 
through the ministry of the Word so that they come to a place of spiritual maturity. The goal is to attain the unity of the faith. It is to grow in the knowledge of the Son of God to the degree that we confidently know the difference between truth and error. The centrality of the proclamation of the Word is non-negotiable where the church is concerned. And that's why Paul mentions these key individuals in verse 11. Apostles and prophets, evangelists and shepherds and teachers, all of whom are gifted in proclaiming and teaching the Word of God. These are those whom the Son of God has provided to the church for her edification, for her building up, so that the church might be equipped for service. We can never overestimate the importance of the proclamation of the Word of God to the people of God, for it is the Word of God that transforms them into the people of God. And so of all the gifts that Christ gives to His church, Paul emphasizes these first of all. But the purpose of this is so that the saints might be equipped for service. Now notice that Paul is not itemizing the various ways in which the saints might be of service here. He lists a variety of spiritual gifts in other letters. But here his emphasis is upon every believer understanding that they have been equipped to serve the Lord. Verse 12 says that the impact of the teachers of God's Word is to prepare all of God's people for works of service. Verse 16 makes the same point when it says, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. When God's Word is faithfully taught, it does not act as a lullaby, gently soothing a church to sleep, but rather it should spur the church into action. The teaching of the Bible should not just fill our heads with knowledge, it should fill our hearts with a desire to be of service to the King of Kings. So when you and I hear a sermon and decide it is time to become a part of the core of folks who welcome others to worship on Sunday, or commit ourselves to volunteering at the mission, or responding to a a pressing financial need because we have grown convicted about our stewardship, then the Word is doing its work in us. When we get to the end of a Bible study and we know that we must pay a visit to someone who has gravitated away from the body of Christ or to make a phone call to the friend who is struggling with their faith, then the Word is doing its job in us. It is preparing us for works of service. It is persuading us to do what needs to be done for the sake of the body. But if we ignore that, then the whole body suffers. And that's the alarming implication of this teaching. It isn't just an individual, me, who suffers when I am disobedient. The whole body of Christ suffers. We are not spiritual islands. We belong to one another. We are connected to one another. That's how the body works, does it not? All of us have probably suffered a particular injury or ailment at some point that has negatively impacted 
our whole body's effectiveness. And that's Paul's point here. When one part of the church does not work well, it has an impact on every other part of the body. But when God's Word does its work in us, compelling us to be of service to Christ, the head of the body, then the eventual result is the maturity of the whole people of God. This is what Paul envisions in verses 13 through 16. It is a church that knows what it believes and why it believes it. It is a church that knows the Son of God intimately. It is a church that exemplifies the fruit of the Spirit and has no shortage of willing servants eager to say, Yes, Lord, when the call goes out for someone to help teach or to go on a mission or to join in prayer or to visit the sick or to come alongside another as an encourager. It is a church that exudes the love and grace of Christ that others immediately detect when they come through these doors. It is a church that knows how to stand for what is true and does not shrink back though the world rages in return. It is a church that displays an interdependence, a a cohesive body that recognizes the offering of every other member, valuing and cherishing the part that Christ has given them to do. So here's the question. Does that describe us? Are we that spiritually mature? Is there an abundance of the fruit of the Spirit on display amongst us? Is every budget filled? Does every volunteer slot have three or four people yearning to be chosen to fill it? Can you imagine how wonderful it would be to be a part of such an assembly of saints. That's the goal that Christ has for us. The question is, is that the goal that we have for His church? If not, then it will begin with our renewed attention to His Word. For if we are to become the spiritually mature church that Christ calls us to be, It will require a willing obedience to be of service to Him who so lovingly redeemed us by His grace. Let me invite you to bow your head with me for a moment of prayer today.